0: Hello oh, and welcome to the 1020, an audio magazine exploring international relations for 10-20 to 20 minutes from Webster Vienna Private University. I'm Katie Wieckowski and today I'm talking to Dr. Johannes Polak, Professor of International Relations and Interim Director at Webster Vienna Private University. He is also the head of the European Integration Research Group at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Austria. Welcome Dr. Polak. Welcome, hello. So. First, you study European integration, democracy, and legitimacy. What actually makes a democratic system legitimate? Are there qualities that sometimes undermine democracy when, while legitimizing the system?
1: Well, let's start with your first question, what makes a democratic system legitimate? Mainstream political science would answer the system is legitimate if it takes care of the wishes, demands and criticisms of its electorate. Now the problem with this mainstream position is that it the quantity trumps quality, so to say, because it's always the will of the majority, which is equal to the good, the common good, so to say, and this is of course not the case. So I would say a system, a democratic system, is only legitimate on the one hand, a if it follows the right procedures, constitutionally anchored procedures, and secondly if the decisions that are taken follow a certain normative ideal to which the citizens have agreed. problem is, what are those normative ideals? Because we all have different normative ideals. Some of them are even uh, contested. Some of them are contradictory. So the question is, can we have a kind of common standard of normative ideals that need to be satisfied in order to make a system legitimate? From my point of view, this can only be the protection of personal autonomy. That means that you are the one who knows best what is good for you. And as long as politics takes heed to this uh, fundamental principle, it should be legitimate.
0: And what factors do we have to consider when we look at the rise of, say, the right-wing populist movement and the liberal representative democratic system?
1: Well, There exactly you have what I meant by uh, quantity Trump's quality. If the will of the majority is... Uh, equal to being right, then we're running into a huge, huge problem. Because we know, and history has been a great teacher in that respect, we know that not everything that the majority wants is also correct or good or protects what we beforehand called also the moral autonomy of the human being. So I see a very, very great danger in those right-wing populist movements demanding that whatever the will of the majority is, needs to be implemented in politics. Representative democratic politics actually means quite the opposite. It means that there is a kind of filter between the will of the majority, the will of the people and what is implemented. We need to step back, think about it, reflect it, deliberate it in public, in parliament and not to replace this mechanism with the direct will of the people in referenda.
0: In what ways has this recent surge in right-wing populism challenged democracy in European countries like Britain through the referendum of Brexit, uh, France, Poland, Germany, and even Austria? Well,
1: what we have seen is a total breakdown of some of the safety mechanisms of democracy. So the enormously important role media have, they have been totally misled. Uh, when you look at the debate about Brexit, when you look, for instance, what's now going on in the United States, they are no longer fulfilling this sanitizing role because they are attacked due to the fact of the ubiquity of information nowadays. So it's very difficult for the individual to judge on which information is right, which is wrong. Because we are bombarded by information all the time and we don't have the time, not all of us have the time to assess those informations. Uh, all the time in the right way. So this is one of the the huge lessons we learned that the safeguard mechanism, media, unfortunately has been undermined by the surge in right-wing populism recently. What is astounding for me in addition to that is that you see the resurging of old nationalisms, old prejudices, the old scapegoats, that's all coming again. So I have actually thought that we have uh, done away with this kind of political thinking, especially in Europe after two world wars. But unfortunately, it's uh, to be seen again.
0: Exactly. The polarization of media has affected how everybody sees the same thing that's happening.
1: Yes, and this is why they helplessly talk about alternative facts as if there can be two facts describing to different facts describing the same phenomenon. This is, of course, utter nonsense.
0: And so how do you think European democracies have responded to President Donald Trump's election and his first few weeks in office? He's a right-wing populist whose main policy initiative has been America First.
1: Well, I do think European democracies have wisely been very quiet about Mr. Trump's first weeks in office. First of all, it's way too early to see in which direction he's really going. Secondly, it might be way too early to see one direction because he's changing so often. And thirdly, the Europeans have invented populism. So Donald Trump might be the most powerful populist on the planet right now. But it's not that we didn't have our Berlusconis, our Farages, our Haiders, and the mini-versions in the FPU nowadays in Austria.
0: And do you think that Donald Trump's rise to power in the United States has affected the right-wing populist movements in Europe, like in throughout Poland with the Law and Justice Party and in France?
1: I do not think that this had any immediate effect. The Law and Justice movement in Poland and others were much older than Mr. Trump's uh, presidency, for instance. You might have seen a kind of a little moment of hooray in Europe, uh, but at the same time you also have this kind of shock of what is possible at all. So it seems to me that the, the rational forces in Europe are looking at the United States and already drawing lessons of, okay, what can we do that this doesn't happen? And this is the the big question we all have to ask ourselves. What have we, and but we I mean those who are in favor of representative liberal democracy, what have we missed What have we not done that something like that could have happened?
0: And do you have any opinions on what we might have missed?
1: Oh, absolutely. I do think that uh, with the uh, decreasing investments, especially in all our educational systems, what you see is that people are simply less capable of forming their own opinion. So our educational systems are in dire, dire need of overhaul. Because we are no longer educating the kind of self-confident, moral, autonomous being. What we are educating nowadays are little puzzle pieces of a system, but not more. Interesting. It's scary.
0: Yeah, <laughs> definitely so. And We touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's hard to talk about legitimacy in the European Union without talking about Brexit and the referendum that led to this negotiations process between the United Kingdom and the European Union so that the United Kingdom can eventually exit the Union. In what ways has these have these negotiation processes um, affected legitimacy in the European Union and the institution as a whole?
1: Well, first of all, please keep in mind the negotiation process has not yet started because Article 50 has not yet been triggered once those negotiations start i do not think that they will contribute to undermining the legitimacy of the european union rather it will continue to undermine the result of the referendum in the united kingdom because it will become very clear to the citizens of the united kingdom that this is a an absolutely wrong decision in terms of economics We already see the first effects. We will see a housing bubble. We will see a banking bubble. We will see the movement of big banks out of London and somewhere else. This is an economic catastrophe. Disentangling so many years of membership, disentangling the membership of the United Kingdom in the European Union, is an enormous legal act which will take years, and not only the two years that are by... Law now, time to negotiate it. I expect very much that the European Commission, leading the negotiations on the side of the European Union, five minutes before the two years are over, will put the document on the table of the Brits and say, take it or leave it. And then it will take another 10 to 15 years until the Brits themselves have come up and replace all the European Union laws. Because that needs a legal act too. So this is an absolute conundrum, and it's bound to lead into chaos. I mean, in my more optimistic minutes, I think it's not going to happen. Britain will not exit because it will become clear that the costs are simply way too high.
0: And do you think that just the act itself of the United Kingdom citizens saying, no, we don't want to be a part of the European Union anymore, do you think that that has affected European integration?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, don't forget one thing. For more than 50 years now, Europe is, is, is running from crisis to crisis and has always come up a bit stronger. In this case, it's a fundamentally different crisis, also because it's part with the crisis on uh, the financial institutions we see and certain uh, sovereign debt crisis in some some member states we also see. But what you see right now is that instead of looking for Common solutions, member states can easily say, now, okay, then we're getting out. We don't like what we want. We don't get what we need and want. So we might think about triggering uh, such an Article 52. At the other hand, the example of Britain will show every member state what a folly uh, the triggering of Article 50 is.
0: Great. And what do you see for European integration ahead? Do you foresee anything happening? In the next few years?
1: Well, I'm I'm pretty confident what we will see is an old concept, that that's the Europe of concentric circles. That means you will have a center around Germany. Austria will probably be part of it. Uh, Luxembourg, uh, probably even uh, Italy, one has to see, and France. They will form a kind of center of attraction, hopefully. This center will go on with deepening integration. And around it in concentric circles, you will have different kinds of membership for the different member states. In one of the outer rings you then might find, for instance, Norway, Switzerland, Turkey. The next ring would be the, the Central European states. And this will be there will be a kind of movement of fluctuation between those uh, circles. To a certain extent this is due to certain opt-outs already the case anyway. Okay. But what we will see, those countries that do want to go ahead will go ahead, and then we will see deepening of integration. At least that's what I hope.
0: Great. Thank you for speaking with me today, Dr. Pollack.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the 1020 bringing insights into international relations from Webster Vienna Private University.